Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news. Hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. All right, well, good evening. How are we doing? Good. Welcome to church. Hope you're glad to be here today. And a big shout out to everyone watching at our South Campus or anyone who might be watching online or accidentally or whatever. Hey, we're glad you're here also. Um, well, we're just going to hop right into things today. Uh, we are kind of midway. We're actually, we're getting near the end of uh, the series that we've been in called Dress Code. And we're talking about what to wear for warfare because we are in a battle and we want to be prepared. I know that we've said that every single week for the last five weeks, but it's important that we remember. You can't be surprised by this, right? You cannot get hit by an attack from the enemy, right? And, and whether it's a difficult season or some kind of trial or difficulty or illness, you just can't do that and then go, I did not see that coming. You did. You have to. It's going to, right? We, we have got to be ready for it. And, and so when it comes, it won't knock us off of our feet. When it comes, we'll be able to say, oh, this thing just bounced off my shield of faith, saw it coming. I'm still standing, right? That's the point, is to still be standing. That's what the scripture says, which means that God thinks it's possible for us to still be standing after the fight. Not every fight, um, it, every fight can end in victory. That can be the outcome of every fight that you're in. That's what we believe. That's why we're putting the armor on. And so God says, you need to put this on so that you are ready for when that fight comes. And so that's why we're talking about what we're talking about. And so we've been getting dressed for the last four weeks. We've been putting on our belt and our shoes and our, our body armor. And uh, this week, we're, we're going to put on something else. We accessorized last week with a shield. This week, we're putting on another, another piece of the uniform. So back to Ephesians 6. That's where this is all coming from. And uh, starting at verse 13, we always need this reminder every week. It says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. You will be able to. Um, and then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. In verse 17, this week he says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, we're going to do part A this week. And we're going to talk about what it means to put on 
your, your helmet to put on salvation like it is your helmet. And so that's what we're wearing today. And I probably don't need to elaborate too much on the necessity of helmets. If you find yourself in a circumstance that requires a helmet, chances are you need it and you're glad to have one on, right? And sometimes it's even just simple things like sports. Like if you're going to go play football or hockey or even baseball, you are going to want a helmet on. You would never think of playing those competitively and then walking out there and and not having a helmet on. All it's going to take is one hit to your head and you're done. And it's happened. In fact, I would argue that maybe the biggest sports story of the last decade has had nothing to do with the actual sports, but it's had to do with the aftermath of athletes playing those sports and, and all of the permanent damage they are discovering that's happening because of concussions, because of not being prepared enough and not knowing what to do. And there's doctor's reports and documentaries and the whole nine years. When you're playing with your, you know, your skull and what's inside of it, it's pretty significant. It's pretty important we understand that, yeah, I'm probably going to want to put a helmet on if, if I'm going to take a hit to the head. Um, you need a helmet to do everything. Now you need a helmet to ride a bike. Right? I remember I grew up as a kid back when children's safety was not a priority. No one cared. It's just like, yeah, no, you'll be fine. Does anyone else grew up in that era? Yeah, I remember, in fact, so many things have changed. I remember sitting in the middle front seat of my grandparents' car. Do you remember middle seats in the front? And remember being like five and sitting up there and I can't find the seatbelt. No, you'll be fine, right? Like, no, it just didn't matter. I didn't care. Nowadays, kids can't sit in the front seat till they're like 22, right? You're still in a booster seat when you're 17 years old, getting dropped off at Leo Hayes, hopping out of your booster seat. Like, yeah, I'm off to school. I think we've taken it a little bit far at this point. I think I was talking about helmets. Um, so bike helmets, when I was a kid, it didn't matter. We fell on our head. We meant it. Right? I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay. I remember when the law changed. It was 1995. I was a teenager back in that day, and I was in fury. I was, this is not happening. And so I'm going to either never ride my bike again, right, because this, this dumb helmet law is coming into effect. And I, was, I remember I was going to start, like, single-handedly the rebellion against the government that threw this, this law into effect. And I'm, I'm going to be the Han Solo of the bike helmet law going up against, like, Darth McKenna at the time, who instituted this awful thing. That's just what I assumed anyway. Anyway, and we come full circle, and now I have kids with bikes. Like, you are not even looking at that bike without your helmet on. This is your head we're talking about. You got to be protected. I've fully gone over to the dark side, and 15-year-old Mark would be very upset with me right now. You need to have helmets on. You don't mess around with your head. And so you wear a helmet for sports. You wear a helmet for bikes. You wear a helmet at a construction zone. You wear a helmet if you're going to go play paintball or ride a motorcycle, if you go skydiving, which to me, kind of useless. <laughs> that is the least effective helmet, I think, on the planet. If you're ever in a circumstance where you needed your helmet while skydiving, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why they bother. We need a helmet for everything. We need to keep our heads safe. It is the most important part. Like, you need this to live. You, you can live with almost anything, without almost anything else. You can lose a limb and keep on going. You're going to be fine. You need this to live. You, you can't mess around with that. And so we wear helmets. I've never seen anyone walking around without a head, except maybe the headless horseman, right? I'm 70% certain that that is fictional. So we need our heads. 
we, we understand that you have to protect what is most important to you. And so when we understand that, it means putting on salvation as your helmet. We understand that salvation is the most important thing to us as followers of Christ, which is not to lessen the value of all of the other things that we've talked about, but just to almost say that they're almost unnecessary if you don't have your salvation on first. You can have nice, shiny body armor, but if you lost your head, what does it matter? And so salvation, we understand, is the be-all, end-all for the Christian. For those who follow Jesus, this is what is most important to us. This, this is what our entire eternity is riding on, is our salvation. And so we need to talk about what this helmet is. Now, back then, for the Romans uh, in the first century, when they went off to war, they understood the importance of a helmet. They wouldn't go to war without a helmet on. And their helmets were these huge metal things, but they went all the way down. Like they had a mullet, like their helmets had a mullet. They went all the way down and protected their neck and all the way around and their collarbone. And then, for whatever reason, if you can envision it, they had that little red mohawk. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Yeah. A plume. Their helmets had a plume. And... Uh, was doing some research on this, and historians actually still don't know why. Some of them think that it was a way of designating their rank or what kind of soldiers they were. Uh, some of them think that it was actually to soften a blow, like if you took an arrow to the head and it hit that hair first, it was horse hair, it would kind of like deflect the blow, which seems kind of, what should we protect ourselves with? Hair. No, I don't buy that one. Um, and then there's actually many historians who think that it was purely um, an intimidation factor. We're just, we're just gonna wear these red mohawks, walk out there. Like, I, I picture the meeting that happened before that battle. Guys, how can we strike fear into the hearts of our enemies today? I was thinking maybe hair, like, like just a strip, maybe dye it red. What do you guys think? They're like, yes, yes, you are getting a promotion today. I'm not sure why they had a plume, I really don't know. But they did not go to battle without their helmet. And they understood that it was your head that needed to be protected above all things. And so for us to wear salvation as a helmet is to know that this is the most important thing. This is the be-all, end-all. But, but it's also all about what we believe in our head. And what we know. And what we think is, is truth. And the battle that's happening up here. And so I want to talk about salvation today. I want to unpack that word. I want to talk about what we really mean when we say it, what we mean when, when we say that we're saved, because sometimes we just kind of gloss over it, don't we? We just got so familiar with the terminology. I don't know if, if we fully grasp what it means. We're just kind of like, you saved? Yep, okay, good. You saved? No, you should get saved. Say these words and get saved. Like, okay. But what do we mean? Why do we do that? And, and, and how does it affect us for the rest of our life? And so let's talk about salvation. I mean, the word itself simply means that you are going to be delivered from or rescued from something that is going to harm you. You are being rescued from ruin. And so you understand that salvation then, if you are poisoned, the antidote is your salvation. That if you are drowning, then, then that life preserver is going to be your salvation. It's the thing that rescues you from impending doom, basically. That is salvation. And so we understand that, but what do we mean when we talk about our souls? When, when someone says, no, your soul is the thing that needs to be saved. All right, well, now you're sounding really weird. 
right? We, that's a little bit different from us. If you walk up to someone who is not a, a church-going person, if you're downtown on, on Queen Street and you just walk up to someone and they're like, hey, is, is your soul saved? Are you saved? You need to get saved. They'd be like, from what? What kind of danger am I in? I don't feel like I'm in danger. I don't feel like I need rescued from any. I'm married. I got kids. I got a great job. I'd, I'd prefer to not be rescued right now. Things are going great. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make sense if you don't understand what it is that you need to be rescued from. You can't just walk up to people and say, well, no, you, you need to be saved. Well, I'm, I'm not in, in imminent danger. No, it's your soul that needs to be saved. And then they're even weirded out more. Right? My soul? I don't even know what I mean by soul. What is my soul? Why is, if I'm not in danger, why is my soul in danger? Right? So it is kind of this big thing that we need to wrap our heads around. Doing that to someone is the equivalent of like chucking one of those round life preservers at someone who's just standing on dry ground. You need to be saved. (laughs) Why? I don't understand. From what? It's weird. Do you understand that sometimes the church has kind of freaked people out by doing that? We've got to understand what it is we're talking about before we can ever introduce the concept of being saved. So here's what we mean by it. Someday your life will end. This, is, nah, this, this isn't just Christianity. This, like, no matter who you are, spoiler alert, your life is going to end. We all know this. But we believe that when our life ends, there is the opportunity for life after life. And that someday we will stand before God and we will have to own up to him for the way that we lived. And he will look at us. And, and there are going to be one of two outcomes and, and he will look at us and say, all right, you, you know, well done. You, you did it. You made your way in. Here's heaven. It's paradise. It's eternity. It's awesome. You're going to be with me. Or the other option is for him to say, you, you didn't quite make the cut. And so your, your eternity is going to be separated from me. And we don't have time to get into well, what's heaven and what's hell. And all, all that you need to know is that there is one possibility that you are with God forever. That is what you are designed for. That is what will give you the most satisfaction, the most purpose, the most meaning. And then the other kind of option is that you would be separated from him, which would be the worst thing that you could fathom. It is the opposite of what you were designed for. And so that's what we believe, that that when it all comes down to it, I'm going to stand before God. And and really what we're going to want to know from him is, did I make the cut? Am I in? Was I good enough? Did I do well enough? We need, we need to know how God is going to mark us, right? Isn't that what students always ask their teachers? What percentage of my grade is this worth? Like this test, if I just didn't do it, is that like 5%? Could I just skip that one? Right, so, so we're, we're thinking that with Jesus, right? Aren't we, some of us? So like being, being nice to poor people, is that worth like 20% of my salvation? You know, if, if I went to church every week, are we talking like 40% improving my chances? Like I, I didn't... I didn't smoke, I didn't drink, I didn't swear. Well, I didn't smoke or drink. But like there's, you know, what, what are my options? What am I looking at? Are you grading on a curve? Like we just, we don't know. There's so much uncertainty. You know, how, how do I know that God is going to let us in? Well, thankfully, he cleared it up for us. He made it quite clear. And he said, my standard for people to be with me, a holy, perfect God, is that I can only be with other people who are holy and perfect. <laughs> oh, good. But that's it. That's his standard. That, that's who gets in 
and that's who doesn't get in. And in fact, when Jesus showed up and he began his ministry, the very first sermon he preached, he called it the Sermon on the Mount. He began his ministry. Everyone's like, this guy could be the Messiah, meaning this guy could be our savior, the one who saves us. I bet he's going to tell us how to do that. I bet he's going to really lay it out and, and give us the one, two, three options. And Jesus starts preaching. And guess what? He made it harder. He's like, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even think about it in your head. You heard it said, love your friends, but hate your enemies. I say, you should even love your enemies and do good things to them. And they're all sitting around going like, you, what? This is how I get saved? It was already hard. And, and you're making it that much more difficult. And you know how he sums up the Sermon on the Mount? He basically says, here's the one line that you all need to know. Here's who gets into heaven. This is Matthew 5, 48. It says, you're to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's not what they were expecting. That's really not what they were hoping to hear. That They were hoping that he was just going to come and do it. He was just going to come save them, zip them all off into heaven. It was going to be great. And he actually ended up preaching something a little bit harder. He, he made it more difficult. And everyone's standing around thinking, this is not the good news I thought was coming. This sounds like bad news. This sounds like nobody gets in. It, was, it would have been a, quite overwhelming for them. I don't know um, if, if you know what it's like to go to like your first day of class at university and you sit down, you are so full of optimism. You're like, I'm going to crush this. This is going to go so well. And your teacher hands you the syllabus on day one and it lines out every single thing you have to do, every page you have to read, all this. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to do it. I am going to fail this. This is way too hard. And you're just like, I, I, you look at it all at once, and it's overwhelming. And then you go to your next class, and your teacher gives you another syllabus. And you're like, oh, this is on top of the other one. Good. And at the end of the week, you've got like a stack of six or seven syllabuses. <laughs> and you are just completely overwhelming. There's no way I will read that many pages, write that many papers, be prepared. And it's just like, no way I can do it. That's kind of what it was like for God's people in the Old Testament. When he laid out the law and he said, 10 commandments, that's, that's great. There's actually way more than 10. There's hundreds more. And you need to do all of them flawlessly. That was the law. And, and then when Jesus showed up, and he, he kind of summarized the law, and he said, just really just boil it down to a couple different things. But anyway, be perfect. You can understand looking at that would feel a wee bit overwhelming, a, a little bit defeated. I'm, there's no way I can do this. There's no way any human could do this. It, it's too big, and it's too hard. And none of us are perfect, right? None of us are going to make the cut. I mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and we talked about the body armor of God's righteousness, that even at our best, we're not good enough because we are born with sin in our hearts. It's just what we do naturally, which is why we call it our sin nature. It's what I do. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to try to. It's just inside of me to know how to be a person who is capable of lying and cheating and violence and, and whatever else it is. I didn't have to go to school to learn that. I just knew because it's my nature, right? And if you don't believe that that's our sin nature, just watch like a two-year-old boy for five minutes. <laughs> In fact, today, we were at a birthday party this afternoon at the Clay Cafe with an 18-month-old boy. 
which is just like bull in a china shop. And, and, and you just see it immediately. He grabs paintbrushes, they are weapons. He, at first he's hitting, then he's stabbing. He's just stabbing people with paintbrushes. And, and then he's a thief because every plate of food that he sees, he's like, that's mine. And if it's within arm's wrench, reach, he's grabbing it. He's eating it. He doesn't care if, whose it is. He's just going to eat that stuff. And then he goes up and he sees all these like clay toys on the wall. He's like, I want to hold all of them and throw them on the ground. Right? I'm gonna, I want to destroy all of these. And when you grab him and tell him not to, he just throws a massive fit. He was taking swings at me. Right? Like... Listen, no one had to teach him how to do that. He did not ever see me stab someone with a paintbrush. <laughs> He's just like, I know what to do with this thing. Why? Sin nature. It's in us. It's in us. And so even if you're trying your best, even if your, your go-to line when you stand before God someday is, oh, I tried really hard, I was a good person, He's going to look at your heart and your soul and your inside and go, no, you are not. I know what you're made of. And I've seen what you've done. It's not good enough. Which is, that's a hard thing to take. Even at our best behavior, it's not enough. In fact, James 2.10 says it like this. For the person who keeps all of the laws, except one, is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. So even if you're like the, the, the best person on the planet and you get to heaven only just one thing, you just did one thing one time, he's going to look at you and be like, your sin keeps you out. It's perfection I'm looking for. It's holiness that I'm looking for. So in other words, our sin has some pretty significant consequences. Or in other words, it's our sin that we need to be saved from. That is salvation. I need to be rescued from my sin, and I need to be rescued from the consequences of my sin. All right, so now, even if it doesn't feel imminent that death is upon you, there's still that very real sense of it's coming someday, isn't it? And, and so now the picture is, I'm going to throw that life preserver at a guy downtown, but, but instead of just saying, uh, you, you might need it someday, it's kind of like, well, no, the Mactaquac dam broke. And I know it doesn't feel like you're in danger, but in 30 minutes, Queen Street's going to be underwater. Take this life preserver. Right? Just, just because in that moment, it might not feel like it. In that moment, he might laugh at you. He might scoff at you. I don't buy that for a second, but it's coming. It's coming. Do you want to be saved and rescued? Our sin has consequences. Romans 3.23 simply says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So here's the good news, church. Jesus Christ is our salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who rescues us and saves us from our sin and from the things that we need to be rescued from. He is the antidote. He is the life preserver. And he is the only one who can free you from the sin that you find yourself in. Jesus doesn't just look at us and say, you need to be rescued from your sin, good luck. That's not our God. Our God does not say, try harder. Our, our God does not crack the whip and say, do better. Our God says, you need to be cleaned up from that. Let me take it from you. You need that out of your life and out of your heart entirely. Why don't I fix that for you? That is salvation. When Jesus Christ takes us and cleans us and makes it as if we were brand new and that old sin nature is gone and the Bible says, you are a new creation entirely. And you are rescued from your sin. 
Like, we can't do that. Sin can't fix sin. Sin can't rescue from sin. It's like trying to wash a muddy car with muddy water. It's not going to work. You're just going to perpetuate it. It's just this cyclical thing. It's only someone who is without sin who can take your sin and make you new and make you clean. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He took the sin of every single person on the planet. The ones who aren't even here yet took their sin. And you know what it does when someone takes on all of the sin of every single person on earth? It kills them. That's how big it is. That's how painful it is. That's, that is the consequence of our sin. Sin leads to death. Right? That's what we're talking about. That, that's the consequences. And so Jesus took it on him and he died for us so that that didn't have to happen to us. He took our sin. In fact, if you think back to the Old Testament, that's what people had to do in, in order to find salvation from God. If they sinned and they needed forgiveness, they would have to go kill something. They would have to go spill something's blood. Well, sin has a result, and that result is death. And so if you don't want it to be you, you better go kill something else, which seems kind of barbaric in 2017, but that's what they did. And, and on a fairly annual basis, regular basis, they would have to go kill an animal and spill its blood to free them from their sins. But when Jesus Christ showed up, he said, I am the ultimate sacrifice. Once and for all, I will die and spill my blood to pay for every single person's sin on this planet. And it will never have to happen again. No more death, no more blood spilled, no more necessary sacrifices. I did it. In fact, some of his last words on the cross were what? It is finished. I did it. It's done. It's over. Your, your game of trying hard enough to be good enough is over. Your game of sin trying to fix sin is over. This whole, I can't obey all of this law. It's too big. That's all, that's all finished. Having to go kill an animal and, and spill its blood to be said, oh, that's over. It's finished. I did it. I did it all. That is what we celebrate. That is the good news. That is salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. And so salvation is here. It's here for the taking, for anyone who can be cleansed from their sin. Now, does it mean we're perfect when we get saved? No. Does it mean you'll never sin again? No. But does it mean you have to keep getting saved over and over and over? No, once is good. You might feel like it sometimes, Maybe you walked away from your faith for a season and you need to come back to it, whatever the case might be. But Jesus' sacrifice is quite sufficient for all of your sins, even the ones you haven't done yet. And you find that salvation in Christ and Christ alone. In fact, Jesus just doesn't call us saved. It's not when you make this decision, yeah, Jesus, I need your salvation, make me new. He doesn't even just say, yeah, you're saved. You know what he says to us? He says, oh, by the way, now you're my kids. I don't just call you saved, I call you my son. I don't just call you saved, I call you my daughter. He adopts us into his family. It's unbelievable. And all of the, the rights and the privileges that would come with being a part of his family, the inheritance that we receive from our father now is, is in heaven and we're with him for It's unbelievable. That is salvation. And, and so you look at that and you think about that and you're like, that's massive. What's the catch? Right? Like, that's pretty substantial. What do I have to do to get saved? How much do I owe? Where do I pay? How long do I have to pay this off for? And Jesus says, no, 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 my gift. 
You ever been with someone, they treated you to something that was really nice, really generous, and they followed it up with, no, 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 my gift. And you're kind of hum- you're kind of like, you almost even don't, like, that's too big. That's, I, you didn't have to do that. Well, Jesus is like, no, I, I actually, I did have to do that because you couldn't. This one's on me. That's a gift. It's grace. It's you getting what you don't deserve. But he gives it to us anyway. I mean, this is the prototypical Sunday school verse that so many of you grew up memorizing, but it's the best explanation. It's John 3.16. And it says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So that everyone who stands before him someday, when he looks at you now and says, ooh, you didn't quite make the cut. No, no, no. Now he looks at you and he says, oh, you're one of my kids. You're in. You don't get graded by God. He gifts you. He gives you the A before you take the class. You don't deserve it. You couldn't do anything to even earn it. It was too hard anyway. He's just like, no, no, you're in. You're fine. We can hardly comprehend. In fact, we can't really, can we? Comprehend what that means that Christ would do that for us. Verse 17 goes on to say, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And this first line of verse 18 says, there's no judgment against anyone who believes in him. You don't need to be worried anymore about making the cut, about making the grade. There's no judgment. He came to save us. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. We are freed from that sin. We are saved from it. We are freed from its consequences, right? It has an impact now, but also an impact for years down the road. This is why we're here tonight. This is why we have joy. This is why we sing. This is why we care. This is what it's all about, isn't it? Without this, what do we have? Without this, why are we here? What am I singing? Why does it matter? It's the most important thing. And so I wear my helmet like it is my salvation. Now, for a lot of people, that's where it ends. Okay, good, I got saved. And I just wait around now? Just wait to die? Is that the trick? Right? If, if being saved is all about what happens when I die, man, I got like 50 years left, I hope. So what do I do? See, salvation is so much bigger than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Salvation is so much greater than just what it means for you and, you know, what, what it means for you when it's life after death. But salvation matters. Life after birth. What you do now matters. He, he changes your life now. Jesus said, I came to give my people life, an abundant life, a rich and satisfying life. And so when you get saved and follow Jesus, he says, right now, I will give you peace that you never had before. I will give you hope that has been missing. I will give you the capacity to love people that you didn't know you had. I will give you joy that will burst from springs inside of you that you didn't even know existed. I will give you purpose and meaning that you've never had in your life. See, salvation is so much greater than just waiting around to die. It matters today. It changes your life today. It's not just shrinking the gospel down to a simple transaction where my sin is removed and now I am good. He is making all things new. His story of creation is he is reconciling all things to him. It's much greater. It's much bigger. And a huge part of that now for us who follow Jesus is that we now go tell others. 
Like, I've been saved. It's the greatest thing I've ever experienced. I should probably go tell someone. Right? That, that's what we do now, right? That's the point of the church. Uh, it, it's our job to show people. People in the world, they don't see God and they don't hear God. God needs a body and God needs a voice. Well, that's the church. And, and now we represent God to people who need to know him and who don't know him. It's our job to go tell them. Saved people should help save other people. Right? If you know that that dam broke and you've got a hundred life preservers and you're just walking around with yours, like, doesn't that seem like a little bit selfish? Doesn't, doesn't it seem like maybe you should share a little bit of what you've got, especially if it could save some people in their eternity? Like, doesn't it matter? Shouldn't that weigh on you a little bit that you know how to be saved? Why are you keeping it to yourself? We've got to tell other people that's part of what it means now to be saved. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 15. It says, He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So part of being saved is that now my life is all about Jesus Christ. I owe him everything, but it's not a begrudging life. It's one that I want to give back to him. I've never experienced life like this before. And he goes on to write in verse 18, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has now given us this task of reconciling people to him. That is our task. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And so now we are Christ's ambassadors. And God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. He said, we are Christ's ambassadors. That means we go on behalf of him. He's not here right now. And so I'll, I'll speak for him. I'll vouch for him. I'll tell you about him. That's our role. That's what we do. It is the most important thing that we do. When was the last time you told someone about Jesus? When was the last time you were brokenhearted that the people around you might not know him? When was the last time you were on your knees pleading for someone to find him? Let's not get lost in all the other things that life fills up with. This is our job. This is what we do now. This is what matters to us now. And so that's why we're a church it's to celebrate Jesus and how good he is, but then it's to go out and tell other people. And then we gather again, and we celebrate, and we preach, and we declare his truth, and it's awesome. And then we scatter again, and then we gather again, and then we scatter again, and, and we hear truth, and we're changed by the truth, and we're equipped to share the truth so that we can go out and actually do the job that we're supposed to do, which is why we celebrate when, when people come to church. It's why we celebrate when we see people's lives change. This is why we add more services this is why we launch campuses, because this is what matters the most. Here's, here's some crazy news that is exciting. Pause for effect. Um, man, we don't, we don't talk about this kind of stuff a lot, a lot because people can kind of get confused or misconstrued it along the way. We don't talk about our numbers a lot, but I want to share this because it's incredible and God is working. And it's about nothing that we're doing, but it's what he's doing. Uh, last winter, last January, February, and March, if you add all of those weeks up and you find your average weekly attendance, it's 458. 
which is great. 458 is a big church in the Maritimes. We were excited about that. That was bigger than it was the year before. So we're like, woo, this winter, January, February, March, same amount of weeks, if you add it up and find an average to the number, it is 558. We, we have grown by 100 people on average every single week. That's, that's crazy talk. That doesn't happen. We, we don't know how we did that because we didn't. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. See, God is doing the work. But here's the thing. You guys get the credit because you are the ones who are getting fired up about Jesus and going out and saying, you need to come to my church and hear about Jesus. And you're the ones who are going out and loving your neighbor so that they're asking, what, what, why are you loving me? Why are you helping? You just need to come to church and you need to find Jesus. You guys are being Christ's ambassadors and people are coming to him and meeting him and having their lives transformed by him. And we want to celebrate that. I mean, this is why we do what we do. We want to celebrate doing the work that Christ is asking us to do. But here's the thing. We're believing for even more of it. Like, we're, we're not, we're, we're overwhelmed by that. And it seems like we're just playing catch-up all the time, trying to figure out how do, how do we do this? But all along the way, the whole point is more Jesus, more people who need you, more people who need rescued, more people who need purpose and hope and joy and meaning and blessing. They don't maybe know what they're missing and they need to find it and they need to find it in you. And if they can find it through what's going on at Crosspoint, then so be it. But more, more for Jesus. Because we believe in salvation. And we believe that it's found in Jesus Christ and nobody else. In fact, that's, that's the book of Acts. It's chapter 4, verse 12. It says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is only Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. There are no other gods out there who will save you. Only Jesus. And so the question for all of us is, are you? Are you saved? Have you found salvation in Christ alone? Have you been freed from your sin? Have you found new life? Do you have purpose and joy and hope and, and that blessing and, and that meaning when God looks at you? Does he call you his child? There is no life like the one that has lived for Jesus Christ. And we would do a disservice every single week if we didn't give you an opportunity to meet Jesus. That's a decision that so many people in this room have made and they would declare and say, that was the biggest thing I ever did. And someday I'll go to heaven and God won't just say, what's your grade? What, what's your name? He's going to say, come on in, kids. It's unbelievable. But that is salvation. It's our helmet. It's the most important thing we put on. The enemy will try and attack it, church. He will try and sneak those lies into your head that, that says, no, nah, you're not saved. No, no, you lost that. You, you, you lost it when you sinned the other day. You got to go back to square one. You're not good enough. You won't make it. He's not pleased with you. All those caricatures our world has of an angry God who's not pleased are lies from the enemy who does not want you to know that our God is a loving God who did not come to judge the world, but to save the world because he loves us so much and he is heartbroken for us to the point that he died for us so that we could be saved. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Hold firm to your salvation that says, I am a child of God, and it is my life to go tell other people about him. That is salvation. So how do you do it? How do I get saved? It's not a secret password. You don't need to know a code. It is not for sale. 
The Bible simply says in multiple places, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and you ask him, you will be saved. In fact, this is John 1.12. It says, to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so you just simply step out in faith and say, you know what, I think I believe. I think I believe in this Jesus guy and what he did and it's making sense and, and I accept you, Jesus. I invite you into my life and, and to change my heart and my nature from the inside out. Make me new. Free me. Rescue me from my sin and its consequences and give me hope and a life and a purpose. And may I be with you forever. That's, that's salvation, church. And so we're gonna give you this opportunity tonight to make that decision. Uh, the band is going to come, and we're going to give you guys a few minutes to think on it. I want you to dwell on it. I want you to pray about it. I want you to ask yourself, am, am I, have I done this? Am I good? Have I considered my eternity? Do I know what's coming? Is this worth risking? And I'm going to hop back up, and I'm going to give us a chance to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And if you're already there, then I just want you to celebrate and pray along with us. But he's so good, isn't he? Aren't you thankful for what he's done? So let's sing to him tonight.